You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Tom. Hey, Bob. How you doing? Uh, I'm good, um, all things considered. Okay, let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter, to which everyone should subscribe. This is a Non-Zero Podcast. You're Thomas Friedman, famous columnist for the New York Times. You write about foreign affairs, uh, winner of three Pulitzer Prizes for reporting and or commentary, author of a lot of books, including, I think your first one was uh, From Beirut to Jerusalem, based on your reporting from the Middle East, uh, a region to which you have paid close attention ever since. And that is the region whose problems we are going to solve uh, today in our conversation. You up for that? Here and now. Okay. So I don't suppose, uh, just to start, that, that you have any actually uplifting news from the, any, any uplifting thoughts about the Middle East, about, uh, specifically about the, uh, the Gaza war, the Israel-Palestine conflict? No, you know, um, sort of nothing from there. I, I was just in Abu Dhabi in Saudi Arabia, though. Um, I was in Abu Dhabi for the climate conference and then a, for a Middle East conference and then uh, in, in Saudi. And it was a reminder, you know, how much of two things, Bob, one, that the center of gravity of the Arab world has moved to the Gulf. Um, mm -hmm. it's not just because of money, frankly. Um, it's you mean because, from, from Egypt or from where? From, yeah, from, from Egypt, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, from Egypt and the Levant, Egypt, Syria, uh, I would say. Uh, Egypt, Syria, Beirut to the Gulf. Um, it certainly it's partly about money, but it's partly because, you know, a, a, a struggle sort of emerged um, uh, from when the time I wrote from Beirut to Jerusalem, which was 19, um, it came out in 1988. Um, I wrote it in 88, it came out in 89. Um, so when I was a pup growing up as a Middle East correspondent um, in Beirut um, for UPI, and then the New York Times, and then Jerusalem, this was 1979 to roughly 1988-89, um, the way you built legitimacy as a leader in the Middle East was based on resistance. Um, judge me, support me by how I resist the Americans, the Jews, the Persians, the Shiites, the Sunnis. The Palestinians, whoever it is, the Christians, um, you built your legitimacy by generating resistance. And you do have a new generation now in the Gulf of leaders who are building their legitimacy on the basis of resilience. Uh, judge me on whether I'm building educational resilience, um, opportunity resilience, jobs resilience, um, environmental resilience. The UAE hosted the COP. And, and yes, there's there's a lot of you know buzz and and um, uh, and um, uh, you know bells and whistles around some of this stuff. But a lot of it's real, and um, that is a good thing. The struggle between what I call the resistance leaders and the resilience leaders, and um, uh, MBZ in Saudi Arabia, even MBS with all the awfulness of the murder of Khashoggi, um, uh, the leader in Bahrain, Crown Prince Salman. Um, uh, the Qataris in their own sort of weird way. Um, the Kuwaitis are completely lost, um, drifting, bobbing on the ocean somewhere. Uh, Egypt, unfortunately, has a leader who turned his country's economy over to the army. And so there's a reason the center of gravity has moved to the Gulf. It's because not only the sheer weight of money, but actually there are leaders there now, I think, with a better model. Okay. So if resistance is uh, no longer the ticket to legitimacy, that could 
explain a couple of things. Um, I mean, one, maybe a little more peripherally, is why uh, Saudi Arabia was willing to uh, begin a kind of rapprochement with Iran uh, that was to some extent orchestrated by China, I guess you could say, but more probably more relevant to the current problems is that a number of Arab states were willing to uh, move closer to Israel under first the Abraham Accords. Uh, several of them actually did it, actually uh, established relations with Israel uh, with Trump's encouragement. And Saudi Arabia seemed uh, to be moving in that direction under Biden's strong encouragement. And then uh, October 7th happened. And some people think it happened maybe as a result of all this drift of the Arab states uh, toward Israel, which in various ways uh, threatened uh, Hamas and or the Palestinians. Of course, the idea had long been that recognition of Israel was something Arab states would withhold until the, the Israel-Palestine problem was solved to, to the satisfaction of the Palestinians by and large. Uh, so I guess I would say it remains, from the Palestinians' point of view, a downside if if you're going to see, and I mean, who knows what will happen after this war ends, if and when it ends, but, but uh, if you do see a resumption of movement of, of Saudi Arabia toward Israel and kind of the end of that leverage on Israel, right, the, the withholding recognition from the Arab states. Yeah, it's it's quite complicated, and it, it ties back to the whole judicial reform fight in Israel too, which is which is related to this. But let me let me just take you back uh, for a second, and then I can explain forward as I see it. So, because um, I I was deeply involved in in resisting the judicial reform movement in Israel, um, and uh, in the that was that was BB's. It was seen as a consolidation of power by BB, widely yeah. resisted by Israelis. Okay, it was it was, it was yeah. a it was a judicial coup, and nothing more than that. Um, uh, so what happened was as that evolved uh, out of the blue, basically, uh, the leader of Saudi Arabia, MBS, came up with this proposal to the Biden administration of uh, some kind of security deal between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. Um, uh, access to U.S. Uh, arms at the highest NATO level in return for or paired with Saudi normalization with Israel on the basis of certain Israeli commitments about reviving the peace process. So that was what was in play on October 6th, okay? And um, I was, uh, as a columnist, involved in that argument in one very narrow way. I was trying to make sure in my own way, um, with my own voice, that the terms by which Saudi Arabia would normalize with Israel, um, uh, terms regarding what it would do vis-a-vis -vis and for Palestinians in the peace process, my entire focus, Bob, was to make sure those terms were high enough mm -hmm. that it would blow up Netanyahu's cabinet. I Because I happen to believe Netanyahu's coalition is an existential threat to the state of Israel. So that's what I was focused on on October 6th. Um, I believed that the deal, the normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia, would not be stable if it was not built on an Israeli commitment to a two-state solution. And I knew that a two-state solution commitment by Israel would blow up this right-wing coalition. So for me, it was a twofer. 
that's what I was focused on. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason this dynamic, I think, did play a role in Hamas's decision, and we won't know, uh, I think, for, for a while yet, and who knows, maybe all the leadership will be killed, we won't know, is that Netanyahu's strategy was to try to uh, earn Saudi normalization with the bare minimum, if not zero, concessions to the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. So he, Bibi could say to Tom Friedman and, and Bob Wright, you guys were wrong. I could normalize with Saudi Arabia and give the Palestinians nothing. Now, I felt and argued to the administration that if Netanyahu is able to normalize relations with Saudi Arabia and give the Palestinians nothing, that would be a disaster because it would actually ensconce him in power despite having done this judicial coup and, I think, lay the groundwork for the next intifada by by screwing the Palestinians one more time. Yeah, although I don't know why you'd be optimistic that a commitment by the Israeli government to pursue a two-state solution would actually lead to a two-state solution. I mean, especially, I mean, you're imagining it not being Bibi's government that can pull it off anyway. Uh, but but that aside, I mean, maybe we'll return to that because it's relevant, I think, to the way uh, you see, in your mind, hopefully, the war in Gaza ending with at least some kind of commitment by the Israeli Government, but let me ask you a a more tangentially related question about bringing down the Netanyahu government. I I was wondering, like, we're in a situation where, of course, Bibi, because of the expectation that he will be out of power as soon as the war ends because of the dissatisfaction with him in Israel, um, has an incentive to continue the war as long as possible. He's not the only person in the driver's seat, I guess. There's a war cabinet, but still, he's an, you would think he's an obstacle to an early end to the war. Uh, and one thing I've wondered is whether there's a way for Biden to um, bring the war toward a close in conjunction with bringing the collapse of the BB government, right? Because because can't, couldn't you imagine Biden getting support from some other people in the war cabinet or something that Bibi's Bibi's constituency would find unacceptable by way of winding down the war? So I think you're raising a very important point. I think that um, it is now clear to the Biden administration. It's clear, I think, also to the Israeli general staff that there is no stable end to this war as long as Netanyahu is in power um, in Israel, because he will never agree to the baseline minimum terms that you would need to get some kind of Palestinian authority, revised, revamped, upgraded, or whatever, uh, into Gaza to be able to take uh, responsibility there. So when the Biden-Bibi fight is going to happen, I can't tell you, but I, uh, it is, it's already simmering beneath the surface. It's coming. Um, and, uh, and I think Netanyahu will have no qualms about uh, fighting Netanyahu, fighting Biden, uh, because he is a cornered, um, you know, a uh, cat right now, and um, he will scratch anybody in order to stay in power. Um, and to stay in power, he must fuse himself with the far right Smotrich Ben Gavir alliance, 14. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're kind of two hostages um, uh, uh, groups right now. There's the Israelis taken hostage by Hamas, 
And Netanyahu is pretty much a hostage of Ben Gvir and Smotrich. They are in the driver's seat now. He's in the back seat. And he will do whatever they tell him to do because his political life um, and maybe his freedom outside of jail depend on it. Mm -hmm. So you think in principle, Biden could pull something like this off. Let's leave aside reasons he might not want to try right now because of American domestic politics or whatever. In principle, you think he could he could do it, bring the war to a nearer end and bring an end to Bibi's political career. Um, yeah, I think you got to be very careful because you can get backlashes when you try to manipulate anybody's domestic politics, particularly Israel's and people mm -hmm. in chafe at that. So I think I don't think Biden has to do too much. I, I'm convinced that once the fighting um, dies down, this is not a sure thing at all. Bibi Netanyahu is an extremely able and effective politician. But I do believe what you'll see there, Bob, is a massive um, popular protest of a scale surpassing even what we saw during the judicial reform. Um, and, um, you know, Bibi is not the kind of guy to say, oh, they want me to go. So I get, you know, it, 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 the very famous story about Husni Mubarak, you know, if you remember, he was in the hospital um, uh, dying after the, the whole, you know, Egyptian uh, um, Arab Spring uprising. And the doctors came to him and said, uh, Mr. President, um, a delegation, uh, the people want to say goodbye. And Mubarak said, where are they going? You know, so um, uh, Bibi's not the kind of guy to, um, uh, to, to, to go quietly into this good night. But I do believe there will be a massive protest. What you have to hope for is that it triggers defections within his party. Because this is a parliamentary system. He has a four-seat majority. Unless four of them walk away, or five, um, he can stay in power until 2025, no matter what Biden or anyone else says. Now, I, I gather that one, maybe one obstacle to Biden trying to, anyone trying to steer the, the, the war to a close is that uh, the Israeli public seems to have not turned against it. And I have a question about what you think is kind of driving uh, popular support for the war. I mean, I was doing doing the math, you know, so they've, Israel has now killed, even, even if you accept Israeli uh, estimates for how many militants they've killed, Israel has still killed like 15 times as many civilians as were killed on October 7th. Um, and if you correct for population, you know, this is out of a much smaller population. Israel has 10 million, Gaza too. And if, and if you do this, of course, in some ways misleading uh, thing of comparing these numbers to American uh, comparable American numbers, correcting for America's population, you know, you get something like, I think, uh, uh, October 7th was like uh, 23,000 American civilians being killed violently in one day, which is a trauma like uh, we've never endured uh, in my lifetime yeah. uh, and or ever, actually, uh, since since uh, maybe the Civil War or something. But um, uh, but what but what's happened to Gaza is like the equivalent of uh, 23,000 American civilians dying every day for three months violently. It's like two million, it's like two million American civilians dying. So my question is like, I understand that vengeance and retribution are parts of human nature. You'd think that you're almost getting to the point where you think, yeah, we, we've, we've, uh, it, it's been at least an eye for an eye. Now there is separately this contention that it's, possible to, quote, eliminate Hamas without something as bad or worse arising in the ashes. 
um, which I don't think is true, but I, I, I think that may be a widespread belief in Israel. What, what is your take on, on what's going on in uh, Israeli psychology? Because I, I think it's based on some conversations with Israeli friends of mine. It's, it's been dramatic. I mean, uh, I, I, that, that seems clear to me. So, as you know, um, from reading me, I was very wary about going in uh, at all. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, my view is Israel should have made this all about the hostages and um, called it Operation Rescue Grandma and, and um, focused on that. And I, I will say, um, and I, so I'm not here to justify any, any math around no, no. it, but I I'm, I'm simply would say this. I think one, in a small country, I think two things are going on right now from the Israeli side. Um, the hostages made them crazy. Um, uh, and, mm -hmm. and that is um, everybody knows somebody who knows somebody who um, uh, was was abducted. And so as much as the killings on October 7th, you think the hostages had uh, that kind of impact? Uh, uh, what I noticed in talking to Israeli mom friends of mine, you know, the notion of your daughter being dragged off by Hamas um, uh, into tunnels in, in Gaza um, uh, has just, it, it first of all, freaked a lot of people out. They went out and bought guns themselves. There's just something out of Batman about that. Mm -hmm. and all I'm saying is not to justify anything. I, I think it's really made them crazy. And, to, and Hamas understands this, which is why in the last 48 hours, you know, they've been putting up pictures of three grandfathers with beards. Um, they're playing on this. And one thing I'm struck by in talking to Israelis, I'm sure this is certainly true of Gazans. This is actually true of this conflict generally, more than any conflict I can recall covering the number of people on all sides I talk to who say, I'm not, I'm not sleeping. Um, uh, this, there's something about this that has really gotten to people. I do think social networks are part of that. Um, the, the intense you know, 15 second hit of the worst of the worst, you know, mm -hmm. coming to your feed. It's and, happening in America too. Oh, but, absolutely. It's, it's all over. And, yeah. and, uh, and I so, mean, on this particular issue, it's, it's dividing America on this issue. Exactly. Totally. In the same um, way, but go I, ahead. Absolutely. No, I, I think this is very, very important. It's why people can't talk about it because um, uh, of that. And I think that that issue has just, um, Every Israeli can either imagine or know someone um, who knows someone who is a is a hostage or knew someone, and I think that has just made them um, uh, emotionally, you know, just kind of crazy and focused on that and unable mm. to grasp the incredible destruction um, uh, and loss of life that's going on in Gaza or to fully appreciate it. That's all I can do by way of explanation. Yeah, I, I suspect that Hamas's uh, leadership, or uh, at least the people who decided to do this, uh, which may have been their leadership in Gaza more than the the what yeah. is supposedly the ultimate leadership in Qatar, um, I, I suspect they thought the hostages would have the opposite effect. I think they may have been extrapolating from the famous case where Israel traded a thousand prisoners for one hostage and thought, well, wow, th this will really, you know, <laughs> this will really slow them down if we've got this much leverage. Yeah. And I don't think, I mean, you know, people say you're falling into Hamas's trap. They wanted an overreaction. I don't think they expected this big a reaction personally. And I think they thought those hostages were going to be a real subduing effect. 
And it, and you're saying it's 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 not just not subduing; it's the opposite. Yeah, I think. Well, going back to October seventh, I think it was from a Hamas point of view is a catastrophic success. Mm-hmm. That it it they succeeded far beyond their dreams. They didn't know there was going to be a dance with um, a bunch of twenty uh, to thirty year old Israelis, hmm. um, uh, hundreds of them, right in their line of fire. They had no idea of that. There's no indication that they knew that. So they fell on just this huge treasure trove from their point of view of young people, young women um, in particular. And um, uh, and that's where the rapes uh, happened. It was in and around that event for the most part. And um, uh, so I think that they were they were surprised by that and then then surprised by the Israeli response, because there was a debate, obviously, within Israel in the military leadership of how do you deal with the hostages? And the conclusion was only by putting pressure on them can you can you do it? And that's going to be one of the most hotly debated things after the war, depending on how many, if any, hostages are recovered. Yeah. And I will tell you, if if from if you follow you know Israeli politics right now, I mean the hostage families every day, and understandably, if I were one of those parents, are on top of the government every day. You know, I mean, just you got to meet with us. You should stop the war now. This should all be about the hostages. So that's really, I think, driving a lot of the emotional um, energy there right now and and, and blinding people to everything else. Do you think it could lead to a, a, an end of the war, not just a, a truce um, before BB leaves office? Well, you know, what I've been arguing about to my own government, you know, here, which is that because uh, we keep going back and forth at the UN about ceasefire, no ceasefire. I'm not for a ceasefire. I'm for the end of the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, uh, which is to say, I think Israel should propose, um, uh, end of, uh, conflict, return all the hostages and Hamas leadership. If you want a plane to Qatar or Turkey, wherever you want and get out. All right. Um, and, and we'll work with the PA to develop a new governing authority. Let's end this thing. Mm-hmm. And I don't, they, they can catch up with Hamas later okay i'm sure they will right they you can go to turkey and we'll assassinate you later exactly we will we will right. you later but um uh but i would like to to me not enough energy has gone into how do you end this thing and way too much around a ceasefire and who will benefit most from the weeks and days of that yeah um do you, what kind of i have two questions about what kind of leverage biden has let alone whether his goal is to bring bb down in terms of uh, just generic leverage, whether he wants a ceasefire to actually end the war, I mean, there's there's two questions. Like, theoretically, if you're just America in this, like, game theory experiment, how much leverage you have? Well, you got the flow of weapons and arms. You've got the protection you give the, uh, Israel to the Security Council. You can threaten to uh, go join the rest of the members, not only in calling for the end of the war, but in condemning settlements, whatever. You can threaten all that. You can say various things publicly. So there's, in th- you know, I guess half my question is, if Biden was willing to use anything, could he could he bring it into the war right now, even with BB in power? And, and, and you know, uh, if BB wants to leave, fine. Then there's the second question about what domestic political constraints uh, Biden perceives. And there, I, I, so far as I can tell, he feels almost completely paralyzed. I, I, you tell me, but... The first question is, does America in theory have the leverage? And the second question is, what do you think's going on in Biden's calculation? 
Yeah, I, let me start with the second because it's related okay. to my question. The first we'll answer to the first, which is that I think Biden believes that um, uh, Hamas is a terrible organization that has, um, uh, in a way, taken Gaza Gaza hostage. You know, uh, in many ways, and that is the necessary but not sufficient condition. It's removal, dismantling, weakening, whatever. Um, uh, for any kind of progress uh, toward a two-state solution. My problem, I think the danger for the U.S., is that we buy into that argument, um, uh, and then at the end of the war, you get Netanyahu and the far right there um, uh, saying, well, thank you very much, pocketing that, and um, uh, and not advancing the peace process at all, um, in which case we will have I think wasted a lot of money, um, and not to mention, uh, you know, how many lives, and we'll get Hamas too, and son of Hamas, and you know, one of the things I wrote in Beirut to Jerusalem is, you know, Israel's killed the number two man in Hamas a lot of times. Mm-hmm. You know, it it it's a quite a regenerative organization, and I, I would I would just say, you know, in traveling there, Bob, this is just you said what are things that that have surprised you? What have I learned? Is that you know, we tend to talk about Hamas, the Houthis, Hezbollah as militias, you know, groups, terrorists, wh- whatever it is. These are now armies. Mm-hmm. These are armies with brigades and divisions. And in Hamas's case, to a shocking degree, their own defense industry. Like these guys, what, what they had managed, the failure of Israeli intelligence here was so profound. This was happening. Right next door, okay? Um, And not only the training for it, but not only the tunnels, but they had developed their own defense industry. And I do think we have to think about this in terms of, again, Hezbollah, uh, uh, the Houthis, that I kind of look at the Middle East right now is that the U.S. has two aircraft carrier groups, one in the Eastern Mediterranean, one in the Persian Gulf right now. We have two aircraft carriers. Iran has four landcraft carriers. They're called Hamas, Hezbollah, the Houthis, and Shia militias in Iraq. And they are, like our aircraft carriers, platforms for projecting power. Mm-hmm. And there's there's our on land. And they're deeply embedded um, in uh, in the region and and and, um, and in their societies. And and that's a problem. I mean, the Houthis are just firing off rockets that are disrupting global shipping and may bankrupt Egypt, um, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but it, it, from the loss of revenue from the Suez Canal, you know, I mean, um, and for the only apparent purpose of proving to the other tribes in Yemen that they've got bigger cojones and they can fire rockets off at the Yehudis, you know, um, this is a level of, of global disorder that is very troubling to me. Yeah, although, you know, the, the forces being deployed, it seems to me, in a pretty pretty calculated Way in the sense that, you know, the goal and this is why I worry about uh, persisting in the war. It seems to me the closer they come, Israel comes to actually eliminating Hamas. I mean, again, not that I think that that would work out for Israel in the end, but I do think Iran would find it threatening. Hezbollah wouldn't be enthusiastic about it and so on. I would think that as the war goes on, you may see more turning up of the flames, you know, more more of what the Houthis are doing now. And this, by the way, I, this is a huge price that the U.S. is paying, the risk of being engulfed in a regional war. I mean, you know, with Ukraine, 
I thought I have various issues with the policy, but at least there are ostensibly American interests being pursued if you buy certain assumptions, most of which I don't buy. But that aside, I mean, this just seems all downside for America. The, the continuation of this war has no redeeming benefits from America's point of view. The risks seem to be growing, although, again, there's pretty careful calculation on both sides so far. Um, but you, it seems like you can expect the risks to grow as the war proceeds. And that's why, well, we, uh, maybe that brings us back to the question of what leverage could America uh, deploy if it wanted to. But go ahead and say whatever you were going to say. Yeah. No, I, I could, though, make the opposite argument. I mean, the one time Iran stopped its nuclear program, I'm not arguing in favor of this again, was when we invaded Iraq. That's when they, when we got very close, their reaction was actually not to step it up. It was actually to step it down. Mm -hmm. If we look at the history, um, uh, number one, you know, again, I think the danger for America is different, but which is not um, the continue. It's a continuation of the war without any political horizon by the Israeli, the current Israeli government. And that that is troubling, deeply troubling to me. I also made the argument early on that um, uh, Israel uh, maybe should just get out um, and tell Hamas, okay, you you now you, Mister Sinwar, have got to come out of your out of your tunnel and govern Gaza, and you've got to answer to your people why you started this war. You know there is, in all fairness, a giant asymmetry in how the war is covered because we do and we should question Israeli leaders and spokesmen and politicians every single day on what are you doing, okay? Mm -hmm. But you cannot do that with Hamas. And so uh, we, we question the Israelis. They give us answers we like, we don't like. We, we push back on that. But how about asking Mr. Sinwar, what, what were you thinking, you know? Um, and and what you, how could you start a war that you knew from the experience of four previous wars with Israel uh, was going to lead at a minimum to you know severe damage to to Gaza to civilians that you do not you have not built one bomb shelter for they're not allowed in your tunnels okay and so um, there is an asymmetry here that I think we need to be aware of and we need to be calling them on that as well yeah I mean again my view is he didn't anticipate this much uh, of a response but but that aside. Um, that would be an interesting thing to do. Um, tell me, so when people talk about the the, the the costs for America of this, part of it is world opinion, uh, you, you know, a kind of a loss of stature in many circles. And also the more gruesome the war gets in terms of civilian toll and so on, um, the more it's like a moral stain on America. Uh, and of course, and a moral Israel... Stain on Israel, it's going to be. Well, well, right, but that's my question. My sense has been for a long time that a lot of Israelis believe, look, the world is gonna, a lot of the world is gonna hate Israel. And maybe it's because they hate Jews, whatever. There's just a certain constant of hatred. And what we do doesn't have that big an effect on it. Now, I think they're wrong. And I think they're almost demonstrably wrong. Everyone is saying that there's been some increase in anti-Semitic, incidents since the war started. I assume you could show that they didn't start on October 8th, that it has more to do with what's going on in Gaza since then. In other words, with, with Israeli behavior, uh, and it wasn't people kind of chiming in in support of Hamas, um, although some of the people doing it uh, <laughs> might might be in favor of chiming in. I don't know, some of the people doing anti-Semitic uh, attacks. But 
so so I've always thought that was wrong, and I've always thought it was a very dangerous belief, um, b- because, well, because of the obvious consequence of uh, just not worrying about what the world thinks of of Israel and how much regional hatred you're generating. In fact, I mean, they profess to want to see normalization with Arab states, but what they're doing in Gaza complicates that tremendously because of not because of what the rulers of the Arab states think, but because of what their how their people are reacting, right? Do you do you think I'm reading the psychology right that they just discount this whole like category of consequence? Well, let me argue both sides, okay, if I may. Um uh in this sense, um, you know, there, there is, um, I just came from Saudi Arabia, in which I quoted a very senior Saudi official as saying, we took a poll uh, before October 7th, um, uh, last summer, of our people, how do you feel about normalization with Israel? 70% of Saudis supported it, provided there was some pathway, credible pathway toward Palestinian statehood as, as part of the process. Pretty, pretty amazing, you know what I mean? And so, now the Saudis told me they wouldn't even dare take the poll. Yeah. Okay. So that's um, there. There's been a cost there. Um, at the same time, you know, how would we feel if um, a, a Mexican drug cult took over the Baja Peninsula, um, declared war in the United States, um, uh, sent over a group of, of people, um, raped, beheaded, maimed, you know, people at the border? Would we be thinking so clearly and say, well, you know, um, uh, you know, let's not do too much damage to the Baja Peninsula? I- I'm just saying that was the yeah. emotional context. I think no, we have a history of not thinking clearly. I mean, just look at 9-11, which which right. doesn't compare with October 7th. And and yet uh, God knows how many wars we right. started. And I, I mean, yeah. I, yeah. I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying yeah. I, I, I understand where this came from. And it's doubly why. Again, I wrote a column before the war, actually citing the example of India, which didn't respond, Manmohan Singh didn't retaliate for the attack on the Taj Hotel, uh, because he understood that India, that that was playing into uh, the, the hands of his enemy. I said in my very first column, ask yourself what your enemy wants and do the opposite. Mm-hmm. That was not the advice that was followed. <laughs> it often isn't. Um... <laughs> so... Do you think is there? Um, I, 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 I understand. I'm, I'm trying to explain that the hostages, the nature of the attack, a small country, it it um, it made people really crazy. And no, um, I, I, I can I can tell that. Um, and, I mean, from from again from watching some people I actually know online, for example, and and the things they're saying. Yeah. Uh, the um, do you? I I I'm pretty sure that BB and some other people would like to see this culminate in the wholesale ethnic cleansing of Gaza. Like the dam breaks in Egypt and Egypt just can't control it or something. And you wind up by basically vacating, uh, you know, uh, uh, Gaza. Not going to happen. Not, not, you think, not you think that, that can't I think happen? There are people, I think there are people on the far right, Bob, who, who that is a, their, um, uh, their vision and their hope. But um, that would so threaten Israel-Egypt relations, which is such a strategic pillar of Israeli national defense policy, going back to Camp David, that um, uh, um, I, I just don't see Israel seeing that happen, encouraging that happen, letting that happen, because that would really lead to a breakdown in Egypt-Israel relations, and that would be 
uh, a strategic loss for Israel. Hmm. Um, do you is is there uh, something that could happen plausibly in the near term that would s- seem to give Israel grounds for declaring victory? Like, for example, if they kill or capture Sinwar, the the, the leader of of Hamas in Gaza. And of course, this assumes, I mean, again, BB seems to have the incentive to sustain the war forever, but uh, you know, he 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 doesn't have uh, complete autonomy here given the war cabinet and everything. Uh, do you think are there things is, is that an example of something that could bring the war to the end? What are other examples of something where without truly eliminating Hamas, Israel could declare victory? So I think two things could change both of the military and political the nature of this story. If the Sinwar Mohammed Daif, the leaders, the military and political leader of Hamas in Gaza, uh, were killed or captured. I think that would be huge. But return of the hostages. I'll tell you why the return of the hostages is so important, Bob. So in the war cabinet, you have Gantz um, uh, and Eisenkot, um, uh, Benny Gantz and and um, uh, Eisenkot, the former chief of staff, Gadi Eisenkot, whose, whose son was killed in, in fighting uh, two weeks ago. Um, it's very hard for them to pull out of this national government while hostages are still in Gaza because hmm. B would use that against them. You, you're leaving me now. We have hostages. That, that'd be very hard. The minute the hostages are out, if you got a combination of hostages out and the you know, death of Sinwar, that would be the absolute flashing exit sign for Gantz and, um, uh, and Eisenkot to leave the government. And that would trigger, I think, an explosion of a popular Israeli rage against Netanyahu. He would not be the winner in that story. But what you're not saying, you are saying that that the release of all the hostages could be the ticket to ending the war. What you're not saying is that there's a plausible deal uh, where you release all the hostages, the war is over. Because I think if that were on the table, I think Hamas would say sure. Because then they declare victory. Um, uh, you know, if you were, if they could be guaranteed that Gaza was going to be left alone or governed, you know, by some whatever other than occupying Israeli soldiers, um, you know, some sort of, you know, there, there was a Wall Street Journal report, by the way, that uh, supposedly uh, Hamas officials in Qatar are talking about some kind of uni- post-war unity government involving Fatah, whatever. Um, but I would think that it would be pretty appealing to Hamas if they could ex- release all the hostages and the war is guaranteed to end and they don't get killed. Uh, right. I don't, I don't think so. Um, no? I, for Sinwar, um, let's assume that he survives the war, you know, whatever mm-hmm. Israel, um, uh, fighting stops. Um, one of the things I've learned in, in Lebanon and, and, and I, in the 2006 Hezbollah war, um, is that there's the morning after and there's the morning after the morning after. So let's say the war stops, there's a ceasefire, and Sinwar gives all the hostages back. And he comes out. Now, the morning after, when he comes out, he's going to be paraded around as a hero. He he fought the Israelis, you know, for 75 days or whatever it is. The morning after the morning after, Bob, mm-hmm. he's going to face enormous rage from Gazans. By the way, there's a lot of, been a lot of polling, fresh stuff, reporting about how unpopular Hamas was before this war started. Okay? Yeah. Um, and he will face enormous rage. And if all he has to show for it is 75 days of resisting the Jews, and as a result, thousands of Gazans killed, injured, 
and the city destroyed, he needs prisoners. He needs to be able to show something that he got. Okay. You know, a so you're saying part of the deal I'm describing would have to be the re release of more Palestinian prisoners right. by yeah. Israel. You yeah, throw and, that and, into the right. deal and conceivably Hamas could buy it, but you don't see Israel offering that. I, it's not, uh, I think it's premature to um, offer that to Sinwar. Um, uh, they clearly, you know, are targeting him. Um, you know, Israel is still operating on the assumption that Hamas is going to be destroyed. Again, I question that that strategy because I think Hamas actually having to own what it did in front of its own people may actually be the most dangerous thing for them. Mm -hmm. um, they have to come out of these bunkers. They have to look their people in the eye. They take responsibility for the war and the rebuilding of Gaza. I, that's going to be a pretty big deterrent, you know, if you need to raise money around the world now to do that. So um, I, I would be, you know, what I've argued all along from the very beginning about is that Israel basically ran off to war, you know, like we did after 9-11, and that there was never a red team, there was never a team B um, arguing for different alternatives. I don't know whether the ones I proposed were right or not, but I've been trying to do that in my own writing to say, wait, what if you thought about, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? There was an elite. It was it completely uh, aligned for better and for worse. And it was, we're off to war. And, um, uh, and that's where I think what happened on that day was such a shock. Um, and there was a wounded macho. It was a humiliation. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it, you know, I think I've told you, I changed my business card um, uh, about six years ago now from New York Times foreign affairs columnist to New York Times humiliation and dignity columnist. Because all I basically cover are people acting out in their sense of humiliation and questing for dignity. And this was a massive, massive humiliation of the entire Israeli military establishment. And what you saw was the rea that kind of reaction. Yeah. Uh and, you know, when people, it's funny, when people, when you question the wisdom of trying to eliminate Hamas and people say, well, what's Israel going to do? Well, I would say, you know, notwithstanding what you said about there being real military force arrayed against uh, Israel, it, it took an incredible series of lapses for October 7th to happen. Oh, Intelligence failures, the misdeployment of, of forces owing to ultimately, I guess, to the power of the settler constituency. Yeah. Um but uh, so anyway, the, the you know, I know you got to go in a few minutes, but the um, bringing up the subject of, uh, you know, dignity uh, brings us to a question I wanted to ask you in any event, which, which is, you know, you you have you have said that, uh, you, you know, you have hoped that the war ends with eventually and, and possibly pretty immediately some kind of commitment of Israel to pursue uh, a two-state solution. I'm I'm skeptical. I mean, I doubt you're going to get anything as concrete as uh, Oslo, even on paper. And we saw what happened there. And, you know, both sides have their complaints about the other. But in terms of Israel's behavior, they kept building settlements. And, and that has, of course, made a two-state solution uh, much harder. Moreover, uh, I, I assume, I gather, the Israeli populace, as a result of October 7th, is less enthusiastic than ever uh, about a two-state uh, settlement. I think I read something ab uh, about that. I, I, I kind of guess it's the case. Um, so, I, 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 and, you know, yet, if you imagine the future without that, it's like, where are we heading? 
it seems in the long run, if you don't have that kind of solution, you've got either true ethnic cleansing, you know, wholesale ethnic cleansing, not just the kind of the 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 low grade ethnic cleansing happening in the in the West Bank where you 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 push Palestinians into smaller population centers, but but maybe ultimate expulsion of them from Gaza and the West Bank, or something that just is more and more undeniably uh, apartheid, at least as to the extent that we're talking about Gaza and the West Bank and and not Israel proper, right? It's like I I am really having trouble uh, getting hopeful here. Maybe you can maybe you can help. Well, you know, as I've said, you know, my and you've known me long enough to know my own worldview is a combination or a tension between Walter Mondale and Thomas Hobbes. So let me um it's the Minnesota two, two people rarely brought together in the same exactly. sentence. I must right. say congratulations exactly. on that right. innovation. It's a Minnesota boy who went to Beirut. Okay. So okay. That's, that's right. That's where it came from. And um uh and and Mondale was a dear friend and someone I admired, and Hobbes is uh, someone I got to know very intimately in Beirut, covering the Civil War. Um, and um, I'm going to let my Mondale out just for a moment, my inner Mondale, um, and tell you that having you know, been covering this conflict since 19, as a reporter, I mean, I've been doing it since I was 15 and I'm 70 now, but as a reporter since 1979, I can't tell you how many times, Bob, where I've heard people say, that's it. Finished. Over. Mm-hmm. You know, can't live with these people. Just they're animals. They're whatever. You know. I mean, just cannot live with them. either side. No way. Forget it. Close up shop. Okay. And then the morning after, the morning after, people wake up and um, somebody's got a little idea. Somebody holds up a little. I have people sending me peace plans now all the time. Um, but Israelis and Palestinians. Um, and so I just don't believe that that we're going to wake up from this and people say no, never. I think there will be that reaction. But I think there's also going to be a whole nother reaction. I can't tell you how big, how dominant of people saying, you know what, this whole fantasy we're on, that we can put up a wall, that we can ignore the Palestinian crisis. I think Bibiism, what, what it represented, which was something that um, I always said about him, he always wanted to win the debate against the Arab Student Union leader at MIT. And he always wanted to prove Okay, that I can make peace with the Arab states and not make peace with the Palestinians. And that theory, that argument, that what I would call Bibiism, has Mm -hmm. crashed and burned so spectacularly here, you know, that yes, the morning after, people not be able to think about it, but the morning after, the morning after, I can tell you, knowing Israel, there are people who are going to walk into that void and say, we need to go back. And and try some things that we were trying before. Figure out why Oslo failed. This has also been obviously just an enormous tragedy for Palestinians. And they, I've just been with the, some of them in 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 Abu Dhabi at a very interesting conference. They are already thinking about how you what the Wall Street Journal was reporting, how we reform the PLO, um, uh, how we reform our own structures. Maybe none of it will happen, but my inner Mondale um, is going to be rooting for it. Um, that's what I do. Uh, that's who I am, um, and that's why I keep coming back to kick the football, even though I know Lucy is going to pull it away. <laughs> not, not an encouraging meta uh, allusion uh, <laughs> to, uh, to Charlie Brown, but but the um, but just finally, like you have to admit that since Camp David, owing to the growth of settlements, any conventional two-state solution is just logistically much harder to pull off. You've now got. 
But I opposed the settlements, I mean, from day one. You know? Well, right. But I mean, as a practical matter, you've got uh, among the 600,000 West Bank settlers, you would, by conventional estimate, you would have to get more than 200,000 to move back to Israel. Well, you know, I recently saw a documentary about the evacuation of Gaza, getting whatever, 10,000 settlers out was like pulling teeth. It was a national trauma. Yeah. And and now, if anything, you've got a more radical, more politically entrenched settler constituency. And I, you just, I, I don't know, you you take my point, right? I, I admire your, your optimism. Not, it's um, not optimism, but it's just like people can't live this way. And so I'm going to be in there pitching until there's nothing more to pitch. And I know about those. That's why I've opposed the settlement movement with every fiber of my being since its very beginning. But mm -hmm. I, then somebody sends me a whole new idea for a confederation where Israelis will be able to stay in the Palestinian state yeah, yeah. if they're ready. And so all I can tell you is whatever you or I think, I find people there are just having this morning a conversation with Yossi Balin, sending me his latest idea. So, so they're not drawing the conclusion yeah. that, well, let me say everybody's drawing. There are people yeah. who will, who will um, I think, be always you know, looking for that, um, uh, that glimmer of hope and that's human nature. Quick final comment if you have time to respond. Uh, if you don't, you can just say, Bob, you're right, but I got to go. Um, the uh, I've always thought, so So the, 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 the proposal at Camp David, as I understood it, would have left, uh, I think, the Israelis in control of the, the border with Jordan, right? Or the, West, the West Bank. I mean, the, the Israelis didn't Camp want, uh, oh. I, I think both Camp David and Taba, right? The Israelis wanted they they were they felt insecure about not having control of the border between the west bank and jordan right mm -hmm. well if they don't if, if the israelis get to police that then then the west bank is surrounded it's like gaza it's like it's like you know obviously uh the the west bank can i just uh, stop you there about because like every yeah. every new peace plan that's addressed yeah. that the carry plan which is about as detailed as any plan um, uh, I'm 90% sure about this, but I'm going on memory, called for a joint Jordanian-American-Israeli-Palestinian okay. patrols along that border. Okay, well, that would be an improvement. Be a joint force, yeah. what, what I was going to say is I, I understand why Israel, like, ideally, they'd want to be sure they control the flow of weapons into the new state, whatever. Uh, and I would just say, I think they may underestimate the value of just dealing with a state as opposed to an insurgency. States yeah. are deterrable. You know, there's peace with Egypt. There's peace with Jordan. Um, you know, uh, you know, I was I was listening to an interview with John Mearsheimer, arch realist, and and they said, well, what does realism have to say about the Gaza war? He said, nothing. I mean, I see this as an area that's in effect under Israeli occupation, and it's an insurgency. Realism deals with relations between states. And, and 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 the part of that I take away is yeah because you know it, it's easy to model the calculations between states it's it's easier to manage state to state relations and I just think Israelis may underestimate the extent to which look yeah the new state builds up a military that's what states do that's part of being a sovereign state but the, it's a totally different challenge to just deter a state from controlling an insurgency. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. And I think that um, that's got to be part of the new thinking. There are a lot of people who think the United States should declare right now, recognize a Palestinian state, um, the the details to follow, okay, but that you would actually diffuse a lot of tension there and actually maybe generate um, a different kind of leadership and and uh, certainly responsibility. I, I, I um, 
that's one idea. I don't know, you know, whether it's in any way relevant right now, but um, I, I just think, look, I'm, I'm if you want to do, you get dark, I can get dark for you. I can get really, really dark. Okay. Bring it on. I will, I will let my Thomas Hobbes out, you know, but I do believe just in the conversations I'm having that um, the shock of this war will, will go two ways. It will, for some, it'll just say, never again, I, I want Gaza wiped off the face of the earth. Mm. But for a lot of Israelis, it was going to be, look, we were we were in a BB bubble for the last fifteen years, and um, uh, and we bought into a lot of his nonsense, and uh, we need to rethink this. And I think we'll see a new leadership, a new generation. I hope you will on the Palestinian side as well. Well, final ray of hope. I heard Lindsey Graham of all people saying uh, something like, "I don't know if you heard this, but he was saying like, look, we can either seize this moment and take the wake up call and do what it takes to get a two state solution. Maybe I'm putting words in his mouth, but it's something to that effect." Yeah. Or just the downward spiral continues. That was like, I couldn't believe it. I, I mean, maybe he said things like that in the past, but at this moment, I would think he would still be on his, like, we must extinguish evil in the modern world thing. Well, um, I'm a, on that very narrow point, I'm a Lindsey Graham guy on that very, very narrow point. For the time I, being. Okay, well, we'll take that. And I do admire your, uh, your, your, your sticking with the fight uh, because we, we do need some kind of enduring solution. Thanks, Bob. Hey, thanks, Tom. Anytime. We'll uh, talk to you down the road. Really appreciate it, pal. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye.